to the Series B Show With your host, Brandon Jones Welcome to the Series B Show With your host, Brandon Jones Welcome to part one of the Reggie Jackson episode of the Series B Show Hosted by me, Brandon Jones in part one, Reggie discusses growing up and memories of his father. Uh, he discusses his love for classic cars, how he's prioritizing his his life and in the philanthropy he's doing. Um, we talk about funny stories around, you know, it, attempted muggings in, in New York, his interactions with Bill Gates, uh, Joe Montana, Jim Brown, and, and respect for rappers that he has, uh, like Jay-Z and Kanye West. So a lot of cool stuff in this episode. Uh, enjoy. Today we have a truly special guest uh, with us, uh, the legend, uh, Reggie Jackson. Reggie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brandon. <laughs> so glad, glad to be here. I want to do a quick uh, kind of run through for those who have been hiding under a rock and don't know that the name Reggie Jackson doesn't ring a bell for him. Uh, so I just want to go through a, you know, a, a few of your many accomplishments uh, to, to set the stage here. So Reggie's a baseball legend, spent 21 years in the majors, most notably with the uh, Oakland A's and, and the Yankees. He helped the A's win three consecutive World Series championships between 72 and 74, and the Yankees win back-to-back -back titles in 77 and 78. Dubbed Mr. October, Reggie hit five home runs, including three in game six in the 77 World Series against the Dodgers in one of the greatest postseasons of all time. The 14-time All-Star hit 563 home runs and was a first ballot Hall of Famer in 1993. Again, well, welcome. Let's talk about where you are now. I know you, I consider you a friend, and if I had to think about three things that I know you care about nowadays, love of cars, classic cars specifically, um, creating equality and in, in the opportunities around tech, specifically for people of color, making sure that uh, underprivileged folks get to participate in the wealth creation of tech. And then I think the third piece is being a good, uh, family member and a, and a good friend. And I, I was privileged enough to go to one of your fundraisers for the Mr. October Foundation, which Reggie does incredible work uh, with his foundation to uh, close disparity gaps in education, specifically around tech. And he had a fundraiser and a bunch of folks, the who's who list of you know various athletes um, who were at the top of their game um, around that time, the, the, the first thing that they brought up about Reggie was that he was a, he was a great friend. So I want to take a step back and think about how now that you're in this phase of life where you can pretty much do anything. How have you decided to focus on, uh, you know, the, the two or three priorities that you've uh, committed to at this point? You know, I've, I've, I think I've known you since I was 67. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm, I'm 69 now. And after knowing you about a year and a half, in, in our last meeting, I think, um, I know it was, uh, we had a, about three or four hours um, doing video conferencing and, and talking about um, Reggie's Garage and the Mr. October Foundation and the interaction of Reggie and Google. Um, as you are the person that manages my relationship with Google, um, you took me into a private room and you said, okay, I uh, don't want any of your partners. Uh, we're not going to have any other person here. It's just going to be me and you. Um, and I'd like to just ask you some questions about what you're, what you're doing in your life. What are your goals? What are your objectives? What are you doing? Mm -hmm. And you drew a circle on the board, and uh, you started seeing how many slices of pie 
were in that circle that made up Reggie Jackson. Um, and pleasantly, um, thankfully, I got a view of who I was um, by someone that I respected asked the right respected asked the right questions, and I found out that sixty um, percent of my life is devoted to the things I love, family and friends and cars. And uh, when I, I I can think about that that now and drive down the street and get tears in my eyes because it's what we all want to be spending the majority of your life with the things that, that you love and care about. Um, the business interactions and involvement that I have um, go from the Yankees to SAP to my automobiles to managing all of the junk that I've acquired over the, a lifetime of, of 50 years of work um, to the corporate relationships and the, the associations I have and my corporate relationships are based on the relationship of the family and myself of 30-some years. Um, I, knew the, I know the managing general partner of the Yankees right now. Since he was nine years old, he's 46. Mm. And so it, it's exciting because I get to participate with, again, my business has gotten to the point to where it's with friends, friends and family. I'm starting a website. Um, that Google's in, is involved with to ensure my success, um, and the, re, the relationship is really what that's about as well. My foundation um, is we just took a significant leap forward uh, by developing a relationship with the Department of Education, the City of New York, where they have a million one hundred thousand kids, nine hundred schools, and they want a STEM curriculum and program that. Uh, has already been tested there, and so it's been accepted. They want to partner with the Mr. October Foundation. So my, my life has turned really to to where it's gotten to be fun, and I'll go back and say that meeting that I had with you about what are you doing in your life? Are you overloaded in what you're doing? And What are you doing that's, that's good? What are you doing that's bad? And really, there wasn't really much there that was was bad, almost nothing. I could probably use a little more infrastructure mm-hmm. and not be so hands-on myself. Um, but it's it it was a it was a wonderful time for me to have shared that time with that person happened to be you. <laughs> um, but that that reflect that reflection, but was, that reflection yeah. that I had a chance to look at relaxed me. Two things I want to get under a little bit is your love for cars. What, what kicked off the deep, deep love you have for cars? My father was a dry cleaner and a tailor. And back in those days, um, Brandon, in the 50s and 60s, um, the tailor and the dry cleaner lived in the community, and he had a, we had a pickup truck. It was a big panel truck. And... We drove around the neighborhood to about 50 to 60 customers that he had that he did their cleaning, their dry cleaning and their laundry, their shirts and their uh, pants and their suits, um, fixed him their dresses and put cuffs on their pants and took them in and shortened them and lengthened them mm-hmm. um, and did this thing called invisible weaving. It's, it was done by hand where you guy had a cigarette hole. Well, he weaved it by hand wow. with stitch and stuff, not you know with the machines and stuff they do now. Um, and so we drove around, picked up people's clothing, 
uh, cleaned it, and you know, on the middle of the week or on Monday, we would pick up, and then we would deliver back on Wednesday or Thursday or something like that. But that's how we made our living. My dad had a half a dozen, three to four trucks all the time, and one or two always didn't run. <laughs> so we always had to be outside fixing them, whether it was cold or not. You'd be breaking your knuckles on cold weather. Your kid, dad, you didn't whine about it. He's all toughen up. You'll be all right. You're not going to die. But um, that's kind of how I fell in love with cars. And on the weeknights during the summer, um, we were a poor family, so we sat on the steps. And you could win glasses of Kool-Aid. Um, if you can name the make, model, year, wow. license plate, two-door, four-door, Fairlane, Crown Victoria, you know, deluxe, <laughs> so it, all that kind of stuff. It got pretty deep for yeah. you guys. Yeah, and so you fell in love with the cars because it was, and it was an American dream. It showed success if you could get a new car, mm. if you could get your ride, if you could get your hoopty. Mm. Um you know, it, it it showed American success. If you're, hey, we the family got a new, we got a new Buick one time, a 1951 Buick. Um, <clears throat> and uh, my dad then, about three, four years later, in 1954, he bought a red convertible Buick. You know, and then eventually, uh, in '56, <clears throat> my dad bought a Cadillac. And a Cadillac was like, oh, boy. that's big time. Yeah. That was big time. You, yeah. you were a rich family. Yeah, yeah. So, what what about classic cars specifically? Get you most excited? The classics remind me. It's it's the memories. You know, my my first car was a '51 Ford um, with an Olds engine in it, and I bought it for uh, fifty dollars. Wow. Um, my second car was a '51 Chevy <clears throat> that I bought for my brother for five dollars. He gave me a break. You know, it was worth about 20. He <laughs> sold it to me for five bucks. And um, then the next car I got, I was a senior in high school and I'd saved enough money up to buy a 55 Chevy. It was $500. Um, and uh, it had a, you know, a hot rod motor in it, a Chevy engine in it with two four barrel carburetors and a four speed transmission and all that stuff. It was burgundy. And to this day, um, uh, I don't still have that car. I wish I'd. Did, it was in 1964. Um, in 1964, I had a 55 Chevy. In 1970, I bought another 55 Chevy, and I still own it today. Wow, because that's what it represented. Yes. <clears throat> that's that's it's, interesting. It's, it's the memories. It's the thoughts back when I, I would drive into the, the A&W root beers. We call them the hot shop where they, yeah. they stuck the tray table on the side and the guys drove through in their cool cars. Yeah. They had their cigarettes on the top of their sleeve. They rolled their sleeves up and had their, their pack of cigarettes at the top. Guys had their name of the car written on the side. You know, and uh, I remember a car called Bad Bascom, another car from a neighborhood, and there was another car uh, called Get Around, which was named after the uh, Beach Boys. Yeah, I remember know, that. I get around. called I Get Around. Yeah. Um, so, wow. you know, it's just the great memories that they remind you of. Luckily, the old cars for me have, have become great investments and have turned to value of 10, 15, sometimes 20 times over. Which car... Will you never get rid of? What's what's their baby? As as you see the values increase, and you can get a lot of money for this car, but you'll never give it up because you love it. Um, so I much. have a I have a Ferrari that's worth in the millions. Mm. Um, I don't think I'll sell it, but if I had to sell it, 
I would sell it before I sold my 55 Chevy. Because that's what it means, Sen- sentimental yes. value. Yes. Got it. So it's cu- I'm curious. <laughs> I-, I read a little bit about you. Your father was big on you getting a college education. Yes. Um, I wanted to know, what would you have done if, let's just say, you were given only a fraction of the talent and you have to do something else other than play professional He's, ball? It would be easy for you to guess. Um, I wanted to own uh, three or four service stations. Uh, because everybody had to have gas, mm-hmm. and there was always a margin in there for gas. I mean, it, if if I'd have owned three or four gas stations at this particular time, I'd probably have three or four hundred. <laughs> but right. um, that's I I thought I could make a living doing that. I knew how to work on a car, and people always were getting their cars serviced. So I thought it was a business that made sense. Yeah, um, and I would have owned definitely owned three or four service stations and. Uh, got them to make money with the gas, and then the the yeah. maintenance and cars and stuff like that would be, you know, extra. And then you could wind up carrying different parts, et cetera, and sell parts to the public. And, <laughs> yeah. All right. So, uh, fun facts I found out about you: Is it true that you are in the running to be Joey LaForge in Star Trek: The Next Generation? No, but I like it. <laughs> I like that. I heard, I heard you, you, your name was in the hat to, to, really? to be on Star Trek: The Next Generation. I had to see if that if that was true. Yeah. I've done about ten movies. Ten movies. Uh, yeah, I've done about ten movies. Um, um, Naked Gun, uh, Basketball. Uh, I, I, just, I can't even name them all. Uh, I've played myself in probably eight of them, and then two I was just some other guy. I've done probably a hundred situation comedies. Right, right, right. Well, you're playing yourself. Yes, yeah, playing myself. Got it. Yeah. Um, Mike Singletary is a spiritual advisor of yours. Yes. How did you guys come to build that relationship? Uh, I met him through an ex-girlfriend of mine, um, and uh, I didn't think Mike liked me the first time I met him. She t- and she couldn't wait to tell me. <laughs> she said he thought you were arrogant, this and that, and I said, well. Um, and then we got to be friends. Um, I broke up with a girl. Uh, we remain friends today. And, um, you know, he was very spiritual guy, and... Um, I took advantage of that, I guess, to to learn and, and get more educated. I'd always been spiritual, but I'd never really made the commitment as, as, mm-hmm. as far as I am now. And I don't know if anybody makes it 100% because you, you sin all the time. <laughs> I know we all do every right, day. Right. But, um, you know, Mike Singletary has been a, a, a special guy for me. Uh, I kind of act like an uncle for his son. He's got a son named Matt. Uh, Singletary, and he's got a wonderful family of six, seven kids, a great wife, and he's just a great example both uh, as a man and husband and uh, a guy I admire. You faced down a gunman in Manhattan <laughs> at, at a point in your life. Uh, I'd love to hear you know, that's, that story. How did that go down, and, and how did you make it out of that situation uh, on top? I, I want to say it was 1980. Um, and I was driving uh, home, picked up my girlfriend who uh, didn't live far, and we were going to our um, place where we eat dinner that all the time, uh, Jim McMullen's, uh, seven, between 76th and 77th on 3rd Avenue. It was a place where I always went. I had a, my own table there, et cetera, and they always held a piece of swordfish for me around right, 11 right, right. o'clock at night when the yeah. game was over. Yeah. And uh, we were parking the car out front, and at the time – there were hijacks going on. Mm. Um, And I was about to get out of the car and I was about to push the window up because it was hot. And um, 
as I was about to push the window up, the, uh, someone stuck a pistol a barrel in the back of my left ear. Wow. And it was, you know, freezing cold. And it was just, I remember being cold. And um, it was like, uh, give me the keys and get out. Not give me your money or anything of the sort. Um, and I always carried a couple hundred on me, you know. Um, and the first thing I did is I leaned over and pushed and told her, get out and run, get out and run. <clears throat> and uh, she got out <clears throat> and ran into the restaurant, ran somewhere. And when I got out of the car, um, there was a bus coming by, and I leapt toward him. And when I when I leaped at him, uh, I don't know if leapt, I don't think that's a word. I, I leaped toward him, and um, he picked the gun up and pointed at me and put it down. Mm. He was a teenager, and I think he recognized me. Wow. Or he'd have pulled the trigger. Mm. Um, I got out. I mean, I got away from him and ran. He got into the car, and um, I was driving a Rolls Royce. And if you don't, it's it's all touch control. Right. So if you manhandle a key hard and the and the gear shift, it won't move. Oh. It's just kind of a little touch control. Even back then in the seventies, yeah. um, and he couldn't get it started. Mm. So he got out and ran. And that night. The next morning, there was a report that a woman had been hijacked and had her 450 SL stolen. Wow! Wow! So when they when they have a gun put out on them, just take it off, take what you want. I'm out. <laughs> what 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 made you say I'm one of this guy? I I, I, I don't know. I wouldn't do it today. <laughs> I wouldn't do it. Today. I just think was I was young and 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 thought I was maybe invulnerable or Superman <laughs> or something. But um, my reactions were a lot quicker. Um, there was nothing I could have done because he fell back toward the street yeah. and, and pointed the gun toward me. And he could have shot me if he wanted, but he didn't. Interesting. Interesting. Um, you mentioned that when Mike Singletary first met you, you thought he didn't like you. He thought you thought he thought you were arrogant and X, Y, Z. And ultimately, yes. you guys became really good friends. What other situations have you maybe um, thought something of a certain person and then um, that person ultimately became close to you and, and kind of surprised you because they were different than how you perceived them to be? I don't know if I can name it offhand, Brandon, but certainly it's happened to me yeah. uh, where you have a preconceived notion of somebody. Um, I think some of the, the, some of the larger, most important people uh, that I've met. Um, Bill Gates was just a real gentleman. Um, when I met him, he was interested in talking to me. Uh, and I'll never forget uh, the meeting uh, in Seattle during a game. It was about the fifth inning. And the game stopped because he and I were standing behind home plate in the stands talking. And we looked at the scoreboard, and there was a picture of he and I. And the game had stopped. Someone was getting ready to hit. And everyone was looking at the screen and then looking at us, and we just turned and walked and went down inside. I was working for the Yankees, right. and we went down inside and right. continued our conversation. But wow. I remember him being very engaging, and, you know, the reputation he was, you know, head down, driven for success, head down, driven for market cap, et cetera. Right. But right. I ran into a guy that was interested in what I had to say. And, and I would say I've, I've met <clears throat> quite a few people like that, um, especially especially in the upper side of business where they have some interest in, in what I have to say. Yeah. 
Um, different athletes that I've met, um, I always thought Jim Brown was, you know, kind of a tough, scary guy, et cetera. And he was, you know, I became good friends. I admired him, you know, I was a big fan of his and I, you know, I've always just thought the world of him, et cetera. But um, <clears throat> uh, Joe Montana, it's it's not that I had a, an image of him, but he just a sweet, super, you know, nice guy, extremely respectful. Ronnie Lott, the same. Um, so I've met a lot of guys, and I would say 90% of the people that I've met are uh, genuine and interesting, and they are what you hope them to be. You know, so the, I, I'm still a fan, and so um, I'm older than Joe Montana. Um, have had a you know good career, but I'm a fan of his. Uh, I'm I'm older than Ronnie Lott, but I'm a fan of Ronnie Lott. And so when I meet them, if they would like be mean to me, I would like be oh my heart's broken. <laughs> that's interesting. So um, you have a reputation of being really good with younger guys. I think that's that's one of the the key uh, pieces of value that you bring to the Yankees now and your and your. Uh, <clears throat> Your current relationship, you're, you're the guy who can go and speak to some of the young guys. You've been through a lot. You could help them in a lot of different ways. Nowadays, I see a very um, blurred line between entertainers and athletes. Was it the same way when you were coming up? Or do you think that the blur the blur between hip-hop and, and athletes now is that music line has been, has been blurred a lot more than it was in the past? I think you're on the right track. Um, I do think there are some differences. I think that um, you know, I have a great deal of respect for the musicians um, and, and the true mu musicians of, uh, I would say, someone like Jay-Z that, that does a myriad of things in his world, Kanye West, um, although he, <laughs> the last couple of days he's had some issues. But um, Steve, the great Stevie Wonder, Sammy Davis Jr., when you go back in time, and some of those guys are just absolutely incredible, um, Smokey Robinson, um, Quincy Jones, the, the level of talent and their skill sets are at such a high, incredible level um, to where nowadays um, the, the media technology has just blasted some people all over the world and high skill set or not, the wealth of celebrity is there. But are they really celebrities? I don't think so. Mm. Not not according to some of the, you know, the, the greats of the past. I mean, I've seen some players now uh, approaching 175, 200 million dollars, yeah. and you don't even know who they are. Yeah, they don't lead the league in anything. And before the, the top of the heap was the Sandy Koufaxes, or the world we live in knows Babe Ruth, um, Stephen Curry for his skill set, but. There's in the NBA, you can look at the bench and there's a guy sitting there making ten million a year. He's making superstar money. He's, he's an average player. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so the the money makes some people uh, stars. Got it. What does it take for <clears throat> folks to go from being highly paid athletes to being owners? I think there are some players, Brandon, that are headed in that direction. I would expect um, Peyton Manning to wind up somewhere involved. Um, in, in a franchise, in an organization, in some type of ownership. Um, I think Derek Jeter um, is, it will be uh, the first African-American to be a managing general partner of a baseball team. I mean, he's always wanted to for the last 10 years of his life. I think he's 41 now. But since he was, 
in his late 20s and 30s, uh, he spoke about it. And, you know, he's quiet, he's private, um, doesn't say much to, to strangers or within his web of, of friends. Um, but certainly he's wanted to, he wants to become an owner, and I think that he'll become the, the first owner. I think he's got um, all of the qualifications. Um, he's got enough money to get it started. Uh, he'll attract the right people. He's got the right personality. He's presented himself for such a long time as the, the kind of leader and the kind of uh, managing partner um, that'll that'll be successful and that you'll be able to trust with an investment. So Reggie, I asked you a question before we got started here, and I kind of wanted to get your quick take on it. Um, you know, a lot of folks hit mild success. Um, you've hit you know incredible success in one of the most competitive sports in the world. And uh, a question I asked you was, if you had to break down percent of how how good you were being attributable to God given talent versus your hard work, how how would you how would you make that split? I don't know if I could do the split, uh, Brandon. I I you know would would say eighty percent of it's God given talent. Um, you know I I I don't really like to divide up my relationship with God at all um, because I think He's responsible for all of it. Yeah. Um, the content you have, intellectual content you have. Uh, all of that that m- makes you who you are, whether you're Larry Bird or um, Stephen Curry, or whether you're you know the great LeBron James or the great Peyton Manning or Brady or Willie Mays or Hank Aaron or Ruth or any era that you could go to. Um, God gives the talent, and then you take it from there. And your parents are you know significantly involved in that. The social. Uh, environment that you're in, the people that you're around. And I think the quicker that you pay attention to God and your God-given talent and that you have a responsibility to fulfill what he gave you, um, you then start to understand the hard work, understand the appreciation, what you have to give to it, what you have to do to maintain it, um, and how you have to neander through the growth of your your idea of success and your idea of success, my idea was success, to be able to fulfill my ability that God gave me mm. and to look in the mirror and say, I'm giving everything I have. If so, and, and in those ideas, to translate them into baseball, um, if I could lead the league in hitting, um, and the league leader was going to be around 280 or 90, I could lead the league in hitting. If you could lead the league in stolen bases around 25 or 30, which you couldn't do, then I was going to be able to lead the league in that area. If you could lead the league in home runs were 35 to 45 to 50, I could do that. If you could lead the league in RBIs, et cetera, I could do that. So the understanding of, of success to me is you looking in the mirror analyzing your talent and saying, I'm comfortable with what I'm presenting to the public, to my team, to management, to my teammates. Got it. Got it. That's that's really insightful. I like that answer a lot. And <clears throat> that's addressing, um, basically honoring a gift that you've recognized that, that's been given by God to make you excellent in a specific area. Um, you have a, a plaque hanging in the uh, at Yankee Stadium's Monument Park. And the plaque says two, two specific quotes that I want to 
chat about, and we can talk about them in either order. Uh, first, the plaque calls you one of the most colorful and exciting players of your era. And the second is a prolific hitter who thrived in pressure situations. So if we take the, let's take the most colorful and exciting players of the era comment. Um, so you, you obviously were, were great and you honored your talent and you executed uh, above expectations. Um, but some of that is, you know, the colorful and exciting players is, is unique to your, your own personality. What would you say um, kind of gave you that ability to stand out, not just for your play, but to really be an exciting player to watch and follow and get fans to, to engage? Well, I would really say that I enjoyed playing the game of baseball and, and it came out of me and my personality and the actions that I had on the field, whether it was hot dogging or being um, uh, uh, strutting or whatever it may have been and with some kind of a special home run trot or whatever, um, I did not ever ridicule the opposition or show up the opposition. Um, but I really did enjoy playing the game. Um, you could see it and how I went about it. If I watch myself in film, I always thought I looked stiff, <laughs> not as fluid or as a, a Magic Johnson or, you know, a Stephon Curry, as smooth and easy. Um, I was more of a LeBron James, kind of a more muscular type of type of player. Um, the, the excellence... Um, Really, I wanted to, as I said a bit earlier to you, I wanted to be in a position to get the big hit. I wanted to be at home plate when the demand was necessary in order um, to, to, when the game was in balance and you needed a big hit in order to perform. Um, I enjoyed it. I liked it. I looked forward to it. And my attitude was, well, if I don't do it, I'll go back to the bench and sit with everyone else. And I'll just be regular guy. But if I do something, then I have a chance to do something that's special. Um, and I honestly felt that I was capable and more capable in those situations than most other players. And I played against players that were, I thought, were just as good in the clutch. Um, the, and I to name the easy ones that come to my mind was playing against George Brett, um, playing against um, Frank Robinson, um, playing against Gibson uh, and, and watching Catfish Hunter, the, the pitcher that pitched for the A's back in the day. And, of course, now that, you know, some of the guys that dominate the game now, you take a look at what the kid with the Cubs that Arietta did last year. You know, he was on point whenever it was necessary. And that's what you call performance and excellence um, when the game's in balance and when the pressure's on. Got it. So um, something, something that you brought up, I guess the way you, you, you framed your answer, uh, it made me think of Cam Newton nowadays, and you think about somebody who can execute, there's still this tone of, um, and I think unduly so, the media kind of painting him as a, as a bad guy. And sometimes folks bring up the fact that, hey, if it was a, a guy who wasn't African-American who had the same level of, of charisma um, and could execute, it wouldn't be so much scrutiny. And I know you came up in a time where, um, you know, there was a lot more overt and blatant, um, you know, I don't want to call it discrimination, but you know, folks kind of setting aside. You can call it discrimination. You can call it discrimination. Let's call it discrimination. Let's call it what it is. I want to get your 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 perspective on what challenges in that regard did you deal with versus today? Do you do you think we've made as much progress as you would have liked to seen? Do you agree that maybe some of these players nowadays are getting still some of those things that you feel are kind of tied to to race and not necessarily to the individuals? 
um, you know, kind of charisma and, and how, how, you know, the media is viewing that? I think there are, we still have terry stereotypes right. toward African-Americans, toward black players. Um, that, that is still there. Um, certainly there have been changes because at one time, um, I was listening to Bill Russell, the great Bill Russell, the Celtics of the 60s, uh, the great Oscar Robertson, and you could see the team pictures as they went over the years, um, the, the, inc- the increased percentage of African Americans on teams. Uh, you can take a look back in the, in the 60s. Uh, late 50s, when you went to Kentucky and there were no, absolutely no black players, and still I remember vaguely, and I'm almost 70, um, I vaguely remember when the West Texas, uh, Texas Western, UTEP, Mm -hmm. um, beat Kentucky Mm -hmm. and just absolutely destroyed them. Um, And it was an all-white team against an all-black team. Um, The coach was, his name was Haskins. And he started an all-black five, and it was incredible news. Yeah. Um, and, and as I said, they dominated Kentucky and just completely outplayed them. There was no competition. Mm. Um, and you rooted for I rooted for UTEP because they were black. <laughs> right. When I was a kid, I would watch television, and you could watch the. You didn't really watch the Cotton Bowl or the or the Sugar Bowl mm-hmm. because there were no blacks that participated. There at least maybe one, mm-hmm. but when you the game you looked forward to was the Rose Bowl because the California team right. had had Negroes, yeah. colored players yeah. at the time. Yeah. You know, they had African-American players, and yeah. so that's the way it was. So has there been change? Has it gotten better? Absolutely. Do we have a ways to go? Yes, we have further to go than I hope we mm-hmm. would have to go because not so much that we need to go further, but it's the undercurrent of 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 anger at times. It's the undercurrent of dislike. It's the discord that I see toward interaction with people and socially that bothers me. Now, why does that bother you? Is it because he's black? Um, So that is still there. Um, Hopefully it'll get get better one day because in 100 years, there'll probably be one color. That's somewhere between you and I. Um, is what we're all going to have. And when that day comes, it's probably going to be a heck of a lot better place. Um, I almost feel like, you know, I remember South Africa. I think there have been changes there. But I think the most prejudice in the world, I believe, is in our own country. So I'm disappointed um, where we are because I think we should be further along, yet certainly the changes are significant. Brandon, I remember I couldn't eat in restaurants when I uh, was playing baseball in Birmingham, Alabama in 1967, 1966. In Kansas City, there were certain places you could live and certain places you couldn't live. And about seven or eight years ago, I would say 15 years ago, I looked for a place in Southern California, mm-hmm. and, and they still had covenants wow. that were still in. They didn't exercise them. Because I could move in, but as you read the fine print, there were no colored. Wow. No, no colored. Not no. It hadn't even gotten to no black and no African. <laughs> it was still no colored. Worded as it was in first Orange written. County in the Newport Beach area. Incredible. Um, I didn't buy a home there because they didn't exercise it, and they had. I was welcome to go in, but I didn't. I couldn't handle it being in the covenant, so I turned away. Interesting. So it actually. <clears throat> Makes me think about um, 
two things. First of all, a lot of people may not know, but your middle name is Martinez. Right. right. So you also have um, lineage, um, Hispanic lineage, uh, as well as African-American lineage. How has, um, to what extent has your uh, Hispanic lineage um, kind of shaped or molded your experience or the way you think about things? Uh, it's impacted me to the point of being welcomed by Latin American communities. I'm claimed as a Puerto Rican, and when you're around them or when I'm in the country, and I haven't been there that much, but they're so proud of me. Uh, and so when I'm around Latin American people, media, uh, they count me as one of theirs. And it's a great feeling. It's, it's really cool. So the Latin players at the same time, ah, it's the Boricua, Boricua. That's the nickname they use for Puerto Ricans. And so um, I'm proud of it and uh, look forward to the association and to the family feel that's given when I'm around Latin American players. And that concludes part one of the Reggie Jackson episode of the Series B show hosted by Brandon Jones. Um, in the next episode, I hope you stay tuned. Part two, uh, Reggie discusses Cam Newton uh, growing up in, a, in a, an environment fueled with racism, um, which created a chip on his shoulder as a player. He talks about having the heart of a champion. He talks about um, you know his new initiative, Reggie's Garage, which is a, a tech platform for selling auto parts. Uh, fear of national embarrassment, his personal heroes, and you know some bits of wisdom for the younger generation. So it's a really action-packed episode. I uh, hope you tune in, and remember: be true, be you. <laughs>